Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, we want to have a conversation with a former president of the New York Fed. And as I said earlier, Bill Dudley has done a public service this morning. I believe it's a two-part essay for Bloomberg Opinion. And his essay today is a tour de force of clarity on what we're doing moving from $4 trillion to $7 trillion, and indeed out to a possible $10 trillion balance sheet of our central bank. Every Econ 101 student should be required to read the Dudley essay. Bill Dudley, congratulations on the clarity that we've known for years from your work at Goldman Sachs. What is the singular distinction of what Chairman Powell needs to do forward with a presumed $10 trillion balance sheet? Well, what it means is we're going to have a lot of excess reserves in the banking system, a lot of deposits in the banking system, uh, and that that's going to create some anxiety that that uh, that that fuel is going to lead to inflation. Now, what are the implications? The implications of, of when the Fed buys Treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities is they add the amount of reserves and bank deposits in the system. The so reserves have already doubled. Second implication is that that forces the private sector to hold more cash and deposits than before. And the third implication is that since the private sector may not want to hold all that cash and deposits. Uh, that uh, encourages them to move into uh, higher, uh, riskier, higher-yielding assets, and that pushes up asset prices. It does not, however, lead, lead well, to inflation because the Fed can control credit demand by raising the interest rate it pays on reserves at, at the appropriate time. I will take your singular distinction that the Fed can control this fear of inflation. And certainly, folks, in 2008, we saw the inflationistas just drubbed by the low inflation uh, that surprised them. What I would point out, though, Bill Dudley, is all of our listeners and viewers on this simulcast understand the phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch. What is the price of a distortion that is a $10 trillion balance sheet? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, obviously, this has implications for financial asset prices. And so if the Fed withdraws this liquidity, that, that's going to have some consequences for financial asset valuations. The second uh, consequence is the Fed's actually taking some risk in its balance sheet. I mean, if you think of the Fed right now, it's a lot of long-term assets financed overnight. And that's fine when short-term interest rates are at zero. But if you run the clock ahead a few years and the Fed has to raise short-term interest rates, you have a situation where short-term, the cost of the, of the Fed of paying interest on reserves could actually exceed uh, the returns on its portfolio. And so the Fed could actually start to lose money. Bill, you said when the Fed starts to reduce its balance sheet, when the Fed starts to raise rates, can the Fed ever do either of those things? Well, it obviously all depends on the you know path of the coronavirus pandemic and also how the economy responds to that. Yeah, I, I'm assuming that a few years from now, we'll be back to a more normal economy. And when we're, when we're back to a more normal economy, we'll also be back to a more normal level of interest rates. Bill, we just got data showing that June is on pace for the fastest pace of issuance ever for U.S. junk bond sales. What are the consequences of the debt being incurred by corporations, not to say the United States of America, as a result of the Fed's policies? Well, in the short run, it means people have the cash and resources to stay in operation. In the long run, obviously, there's limits to how much debt people can take on. So there's a risk of servicing that debt 
uh, over the longer term. I mean, the Fed is worried about today and tomorrow and next week and next month. Uh, they're not so worried about what's going to happen five years from now. But, you know, there will be a hangover from what we're experiencing today. I look, Mr. Dudley, at all that we've gone through, and I would suggest this was not in your textbooks at Berkeley years ago. It is unorthodox. Do you have a confidence in the belief of all of the smart people like you to get this fixed, even if we're working off original theory? Well, we've never gone down this particular path before, so I think, Tom, you have to be a little bit cautious and say uh, we don't know how this is all going to turn out. Uh, that said, it's certainly better than allowing the economy to sink beneath the waves and have a full-flown uh, depression. So I think what the Fed is doing is appropriate, uh, but we don't yet know how this is all going to play out over the longer run. Bill Dudley, I give Chairman Powell extremely high marks. Everybody grows into the position and the pressure of those very bright lights. And he's, I think, really handling much better now the press conference and the back and forth and the nuances of all this. But the thing that's out there is what if we receive some form of exogenous shock to the system given this balance sheet build up? Are we prepared for the not the next pandemic? I don't want to get all fiery in that. But are we, are we prepared for any kind of exogenous shock within our debt markets? Well, I think the Fed has shown that they have a pretty wide array of tools to deal with uh, market functioning issues. And I think one of the great successes of the last few months is that we had a lot of market stress in March and going into April, and the Fed introduced a number of special liquidity facilities that have actually caused markets to return to good functioning. So I think it tells you that the Fed still has pretty good uh, tools to deal with things like uh, illiquidity. The problem I think we have fundamentally, though, is that the pandemic is causing harm to household and corporate balance sheets, and there's limits to what the Fed can do with respect to that damage. My favorite quote over the weekend, a fund manager called the Federal Reserve helicopter parents for the market. I thought that that was pretty apt at a time when you have a lot of worries that are just being absolutely pushed away uh, at the at the behest of the Federal Reserve. People saying, put your faith in the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. The Fed has our backs. I'm wondering how concerned you are, Bill, that this takes the pressure off of Congress, of federal lawmakers to actually pass some stimulus efforts that could potentially get to Main Street faster than some of the Fed's programs? Well, I think Chair Powell has made that same point, that uh, it, it can't all be just about monetary policy. The pandemic is causing harm to people's incomes, to their balance sheets, and that's something that really monetary policy can't repair by itself. You, that's why you need fiscal policy stimulus. So, you know, one of the you know, risks here is that people think that the Fed is all-powerful and, and basically put all the all the weight on the Fed. And the fact, I think that we need more, probably, are probably going to need more fiscal stimulus than what we've got to date. Dr. Dudley, thank you so much for joining us today. Bill Dudley is the former uh, president of the New York Fed, an exceptionally interesting and clear essay for Bloomberg Opinion today. And I really anticipate, folks, what I believe is a presumed second essay from Bill Dudley on the prescription forward given a $10 trillion deficit. Right now with us, and we're thrilled to bring you here for an important conversation on deflation and disinflation, James Sweeney of Credit Suisse. He writes wonderfully direct research reports, uh, this out of the acuity of the London School of Economics. James, I've got to start with what was in the literature this weekend, which is the what if. 
What if we do fiscal policy? What if we do fiscal salvation? And what if we run out of it before we get a legitimate recovery? Is that feasible? Is that possible? I mean, with the politics the way they are right now, I think anything is possible with fiscal. I mean, I could imagine a a strong stimulus. I could imagine a temporary strong stimulus that runs out, and I can imagine no stimulus. And that creates a lot of uncertainty for the outlook in both directions. The outlook in both directions. And then it sort of really comes down to not the V-shaped idea. And I, I looked at the spreadsheets, down we go and up we go Q3. How big of a mystery is the fourth quarter of this year? It's a very big mystery, and I, and I think that, well, we've got three uncertainties. I mean, first we have, are we going to have another fiscal stimulus? We have the, that extended unemployment help running out on July 31st. So you're going to have a big drop in household uh, cash flows after that if, if you don't renew it. Um, and, and it looks like they probably won't. They might extend it but not renew it. But on top of that, you know, we have ongoing contagion. Uh, accelerating contagion in many states, and could that lead to more shutdowns even without more shutdowns? Could it lead to people staying home to the extent where we don't have the full recovery, um, you know, the full post-shutdown normalization we were hoping for? And then you have the election as well. So um, I think you have to put large error bands around any forecast for, for the fourth quarter this year, and arguably for the third too. Well, let's talk about the bounce we've seen as well, James, and how the bounce, the data bounce that we've seen over the last month informs your views about the latter end of this year. What do you take away from the bounce? Yeah, it does not inform my view about the latter half of this year. This bounce was entirely predictable. This is turning the light switch off on the economy and turning it back on again. It's pretty, it's pretty easy. If, if hours work to go down because they send us home, and then we, they bring us back to work, and hours work are going to go back up, and the data are going to bounce. But it's not answer, answering any of the big questions. So, you know, the unemployment so rate James, is likely to fall really for a little while, Just to jump in, this is so, so yep. significant. Yep. So many people are looking at this data bounce, and they're extrapolating it out to 3Q, to 4Q, into 2021. What does inform your view about the year still to come? Well, I mean, I think you can extrapolate this bounce out a few more months as long as you're seeing people return to work. But further out, I mean, if I'm thinking about the labor market at the end of the year, I want to know, you know how damaged are businesses, how bad are their balance sheets and earnings so that they can't hire. I want to know how bad are their sales expectations, given that the virus may still be around and a lot of people might be avoiding certain activity. And, and I want to know even how, much, how many efficiencies have businesses found uh, while their workers have been working from home. So some businesses may be discovering that they could rearrange some things, use less space and fewer workers. And I, I think all of those three factors are different factors, a backward-looking, a forward-looking, and a productivity one, uh, which could lead to an elevated unemployment rate later in the year. So I, I think the unemployment rate is falling now for very simple and simplistic reasons, where the, the light switch is, is being dialed back up again. But um, it's going to be high. It's going to be a lot higher than 3.5% at, at the end of the year, uh, maybe in the high single digits or even higher. Um, and, and, you know, so we, we've got to really think about all those factors separately. James, efficiencies is a sort of a dirty word right now as people look for the second wave of layoffs. How much are the Federal Reserve's policies buoying this uh, market from a Main Street perspective, keeping some of these businesses alive and can continue to through the end of this year? Well, there's no doubt that the, the PPP program in particular, which I think of more as a Treasury, pro- of a tre- treasury program than a Fed program, has uh, has 
kept a lot of businesses going. Um, and I think the Fed programs in general have kept credit flowing. You've had this extraordinary uh, issuance in, in the primary markets, but it doesn't mean everything's good. I mean, you're going to have a lot of business failures, and we don't know what the balance sheet damage looks like six months from now. So it's, it's just a very, very big deal. When you have the GDP contraction of this size driven by the virus, we've had policy responses which are extremely forceful, um, but it's even possible that they are not enough. And, and that's why you circle July 31st as the date that some of the CARES Act benefits expire. And, and this is going to be the next particularly important moment that markets are going to focus on as we come to learn what the second half is going to be like. James, everyone's becoming a social scientist and trying to parse through Google, Google searches and other soft, high-frequency data to get a sense of what the consumer behavior is going to be with respect to the virus as well as businesses. What are you looking for? What's sort of the early indicators that can give us a sense of just how much business is being suppressed by people's concerns and, frankly, how much businesses have to respond by shutting down so that they don't have the extra expenses of being open without enough business to justify it? Yeah, there's different forms of foot traffic data, web traffic data, you know, hours worked data. I mean, there's a lot of very ultra high frequency macro data that didn't exist just a few years ago. And and right now, I would say, and we've surveyed quite a, quite a few of these numbers. Um, it, you're not normalizing. You're you're normalizing very slowly in the states that reopened uh, first. And then the states that reopened later, they're slowly normalizing, too. And now, in the states that reopened first, you have a very sharp pickup um, in contagion in, in a number of them. So uh, I think the best-case scenario was that the, the virus is, is, is a little quiet, and you know, you're, you're returning workers to work, and some workers are avoiding risks, and therefore you can't expect a, a normal level of demand. But if the virus is severe then a lot more workers and, and customers are going to avoid going out. And in those most affected sectors like restaurants and travel and airlines, et cetera, you know, you're going to have a problem. And, and so every data point on the contagion uh, suggests, you know, something bad for the second half of the year. Uh, James, you made your name with Neil Soss studying deflation and really pushing against the deflation gloom in Europe ages and ages ago. I want you to parse right now the disinflation of America in goods and services. We've had a pernicious decline in price for goods at times, fine. But services have been remarkably stable. Can you model out, given this pandemic and the tough recovery, can you model out services, disinflation, or even outright sure. deflation? Sure. Well, I mean, in the way inflation is measured, um, about two-thirds is services prices and one-third is goods. And it's important to know that because, you know, most people really look at cars and look at gasoline and there's their view on inflation. Uh, but services are important. And you've got things like housing, health care, and financial services in there, which are opaque, and sometimes the prices are even basically modeled, at least in the short term. Right now, housing inflation looks likely to, to put downward pressure on overall inflation. Um, mm -hmm. Financial inflation and the others are and healthcare are a little bit more mysterious. Um, but this was a huge drop in services consumption, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Great Depression. And, and right now we have a much bigger services sector. So, you know, we're going to see headline inflation bounce around zero for a while. We're going to see core inflation bounce around 1%. Um, services are doing some of that work. I mean, there's certain goods like airlines and, well, and used cars that are, that are doing it on the good side as well. But this is the 
temporary implications on prices from the shutdown and, and from the virus. Okay. The long-term question is a little different. Then one final question, James. It's just real simple here. If we're going to model this kind of nominal GDP, should we begin to really aggressively talk about a Fed that manages for nominal GDP and not real GDP? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think really the dual mandate is, is nominal GDP in a way because you've got, you know, the unemployment rate is yeah. the real growth piece and the inflation is the, is the inflation piece. So there you have it. If you're doing both right, you're, you're really targeting nominal, just not, you know, explicitly. Um, so I, I think we've had a 4% nominal GDP trend in the U.S. over the past 10 years, and hopefully we can get back on it. I think the equity market is is trading as if the expectation is we're going to be on that 4% nominal GDP yep. trend for too long. Um, the bond market seems to have its doubts, and I, I think that, that encapsulates pretty well the uh, range of opinions right now on deflation and inflation. A wide range of opinions on pretty much everything right now. James, fantastic to catch up with you, sir, as always. <laughs> James Sweeney of Credit Suisse on this market, this economy, this recovery. Joining us now, as he did uh, a bit ago, uh, joining us now uh, is uh, the head of the MTA, their chairman, Patrick Foy, uh, joins us now. Pat, 132 people within your huge organization succumbed to the virus. The courage and the heat of this was noted. What will they do? What will the MTA do to celebrate on this reopening? Well, phase two, <coughs> phase two uh, is a big step for New York City and, frankly, a big step forward for the, uh, uh, for the country. Uh, I'm glad, Tom, that you're going to be eating in New York City restaurants uh, five days a week. Uh, the city needs the business and the, uh, uh, and, and the tax revenue. Throughout the entire pandemic, the uh, MTA uh, em employees, uh, subways, buses, Metro North, Long Island Railroad, bridges and tunnels have been heroes moving uh, heroes. They've done extraordinary work in the most trying circumstances. Uh, at one point, uh, a, a total of uh, well over 10,000 employees were under home quarantine. 10,000 employees have returned to work. The number of uh, employees on home quarantine is in the uh, is in the hundreds, down from thousands. And tragically, 132 of our colleagues succumbed to the virus at, uh, at the MTA. Subways, buses, New York City Transit, Metro North Long Island Railroad. Uh, and, uh, and, and that is tragic. Obviously, New York has been the epicenter of the, uh, uh, of the pandemic, but the MTA workforce has been heroes, moving heroes, first responders and essential employees, including fellow trans workers. What, what will be the process of someone on a subway, someone on a bus not wearing a mask? Well, look, it is state law to wear a mask on public transit as a result of an executive order that Governor uh, Cuomo issued some weeks ago. Uh, I, I can tell you that uh, compliance by our employees is universal. We have done physical counts on the subways. The original count was a 92% mass compliance by our employees. We believe it is now 95%. We've got a robust communications and messaging plan to get the uh, number even higher. And we've been distributing uh, over the last couple of weeks millions of masks to riders who are returning to the system. It is not optional. It is mandatory in state law to wear a mask on transit. Public health officials tell us that the single most important thing any anybody can do in whatever environment they're in, but including on transit, is to wear a mask. It protects you, it protects your fellow commuters, and it protects our employees. 
Pat, I've been looking at pictures of workers cleaning all of the subway cars twice a day, which is fantastic for anyone who wants to ride a clean subway. It all takes money. And your CFO said that it could be as soon as early July, at which point the MTA will run out of money, will run out of the federal funding that's been propping up the finances. What then, if the federal, if the, if the federal government does not re-up that financing, what happens to the MTA? So, so, Lisa, just one point of clarification, which is important. Uh, our employees are not cleaning subways. Uh, they're not cleaning stations. They're disinfecting them. And we've been doing that since, uh, since March 3rd. Bob Foran, our CFO's concern, is, uh, is well-placed. We're in a dire financial situation. We got the MTA received $3.8 billion, was awarded $3.8 billion in, in the CARES Act. That money will carry us through July. We'll be drawing it down through August. Uh, the FTA at USDOT has done a good job of facilitating and expediting that money. The Heroes, uh, the Heroes Act, uh, which uh, passed the House thanks to Speaker uh, Pelosi uh, and the support of the New York congressional delegation, provides an additional $3.9 billion of federal funding. It's obviously subject to Senate uh, approval. It is absolutely critical that the MTA receive that money. We hired McKinsey to do a review of our finances uh, and the, looking at the revenue decline because ridership is down uh, across the system, uh, expenses are up, and also a dedicated package of taxes and subsidies, which also accounts for 50% of the uh, MTA's uh, revenue in a, in a normal year. M McKinsey's midpoint is $7.7 billion dollars. So the 3.8 from CARES and the 3.9 in the House bill on the heroes will take us through 2020. It's critical that we receive that federal funding. Pat, just real quick here, that distinction that you made between disinfecting and cleaning, why was that an important distinction to make? Well, we, we cleaning uh, means taking the coffee cups out and, and, and the refuse on, on, a, on a subway car or bus. We've been disinfecting using disinfecting agents since uh, since March 3rd uh, because of the pandemic. We've also been piloting the use of ultraviolet sea light on subway cars and buses. We're doing that right now. Uh, we worked with a Columbia University professor, Dr. David Brenner of the Irving Medical Center uh, at Columbia, who's an expert on ultraviolet light. He concluded in this innovative collaboration with the MTA that ultraviolet sea light kills the COVID-19 virus. We've also been piloting the use of antimicrobials, uh, which we believe and to be verified by independent laboratories and, and regulators, that it too will kill the COVID-19 virus and has the potential to do that for weeks and months after application. That would be a game changer. And the point I wanted to make to our riders is that we are looking at yeah. every step yeah. we can to minimize public health risk to our customers and to our employees. Ultraviolet light, uh, ultraviolet sea light, the antimicrobials are evidence of that. Pat, we appreciate the hard work the, city, the whole city does and our thoughts are with the team of the MTA. Pat Foy there of the MTA. Right now, let us turn to what we do, which is economics, finance, investment, and more on foreign exchange than anyone in the world. And we can do that with Jane Foley of Rabobank. She's exceptionally attuned to not only what the speculators are doing, but also the commercial banking interests of her Rabobank. Jane Foley, I have to start 
with the dollar. I noticed today looking at the Bloomberg dollar index, which is basically resilience for four years, even pushing into five years of a relatively strong dollar. That's been a great missed call. When do we finally see the dollar give way to what the consensus call is, which is dollar weakness? You know, Tom, that's a really interesting question because, like you say, the consensus call for a number of years has been that we will have a weaker dollar. And, and finally, uh, the, the, the dollar bears are saying, well, this year, this is going to be the year that we see this weaker dollar because look at all that money printing that we've had. Look at all the extra liquidity that we saw at the Fed and, and other central banks add. But, you know, I think the answer really will be and risk appetite, because it's not just this year that we've seen, say, a correlation between the dollar and emerging market stocks. This has been going on at least since 2018, and it seems to me that the answer to the dollar or the dollar's, the dollar's trend will be an emerging market. If the market is confident enough to keep on investing in EM, the dollar will go down. If it isn't, it won't. And the dollar still will have this safe haven. So if we do have another wave, if we do have later on in the year markets really concerned that uh, stock markets got ahead of themselves, well, in that sort of instance, the dollar is likely to do well. But if the market carries on being really optimistic and being in this blind stupor of optimism because of central bank money, well, the dollar could soften. It, it, it certainly could. Jane, is this another way of saying don't waste your time looking at rate differentials? Well, you know, rate differentials obviously come into it. I mean, they're the bread and butter, clearly, of, of foreign exchange. But they, it has changed. So, for instance, if we, we consider, for instance, a carry trade, um, it used to be the days when we used to sell the yen as, as the, the funding currency uh, and buy the Aussie. But if you look now where, where Aussie rates are, they're really not uh, that high anymore. Uh, last year, people swapped, for instance, to, to, to the Mexican peso as, as a carry trade. But in terms of funding currencies, perhaps now you have a lot more choice. You've got negative interest rates for a, a variety of different uh, countries now, not just, of course, uh, uh, the yen. So the, the market has changed. Interest rates will always be uh, important. But I think what we have, as we all know, in terms of crisis, we have this big correlation where we have risk on and risk off. And in those sorts of uh, yeah. environments, uh, we have less detail. Well, let's talk about the characteristics of this particular regime just a little bit more, Jane. Going into the downturn, the March contraction that we saw, not just in the economy, but in this market too, increasingly the euro was becoming the funding currency of choice. Then it quickly unwound. Have you seen that build up in any particular way that's significant enough that we need to think about more? I think the euro has been significant this year. Now, we've got to remember that the, the eurozone has an enormous current account surplus. Germany has an enormous current account surplus. And what we saw in March when we saw this big sell-off in, in risky currencies and, and, and EM in particular, uh, we obviously saw the dollar benefit. But I would always say I, I think the euro held up relatively well against the, the US dollar. I think what we actually saw was sort of EM versus G10 with, with the dollar coming out at the top of the bundle of, of the G10. But, but Europe held up well. And then, of course, last month we had those two pieces of news which I think were significant for the euro. We had uh, the, the ECB really put in its mouth where its, where its, where its, its money, where its mouth was, and, and say, look, we do not want fragmentation in Europe. We do not want the market to think about fragmentation. We're going to buy those peripheral bonds. We're going to stop that sort of talk, which helped the euro. Uh, and, and, of course, we also had that EU, European Commission budget proposal. That was a step forward. Now, clearly, that 
that's got to be ratified. But we've still got the euro really buoyed on that. So I think the, the sort of neutral point for, for euro dollar has shifted higher on, on the back of European news. And I think that is significant. Jane, the dollar is still very much the funding choice of many countries. And that's the reason why the Federal Reserve opened up that swap line and expanded it dramatically in the wake of the dollar crunch that we saw in March. Last week marked the first time that the Fed started to taper that. And people are expecting that to continue. The demand for dollars coming down. Does that tell you that the dollar crunch is over? Or does that tell you that this could be a potential risk uh, with the dollar surging again if there is a liquidity shortage around the world? I think it tells you both of those things. I think it tells you, at least for now, yes, the, 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 the eye of the storm has passed, the, the middle of the crisis has gone, and things are, are calming down. And we can see that in lots of different asset crises, too. We wouldn't have stock markets where they are now if we were in the middle or you know, still in the eye of the storm. But we also know, you know, all of us, we, we look at our screens every day and, and we see worrying news about uh, the coronavirus in, in the U.S., or we see the R rate rising again in, in, in Germany or, um, you know, in Brazil, we see terrible news. And, and then we know that we're going to face bad economic uh, news as well over the next few months at the very least. So we all know that there is another wave. And if there is another wave, it will be the dollar and, and, and possibly the, the yen in, in the currency world that will will we'll see still some flows. And, and central banks will have to react again if that does happen. Uh, Jane, I got killed this weekend. I lost so much money on the tots. It's incalculable. Where can I make back money in foreign exchange in the next six months? Where's a tradable trade right now in FX? Which pair gets it done? You know what? I think the trade that you might be putting on today could be very different to the trade that you're sitting on in six months' time. And it very much depends as to whether or not we get that second wave or not. If you are extremely confident that we won't, then yeah, maybe you'll make money out of, of selling uh, the dollar. But, you know, looking at the Aussie dollar, that does worry me. I think we see the same picture in the Aussie dollar as we see in many stock markets, and we see a lot of good news in that price. And if we see a lot of good news in the price, it clearly means that the market is, is more susceptible to, to, to bad news. And, and I do think that we've got some retracement uh, to go, um, potentially a mm. lot of retracement, but certainly some retracement in, in the next uh, uh, few months. So, you know, I would be a, a seller on rallies of, of risk currencies like the Aussie. Uh, and also, I, I'd be very um, uh, concerned about sterling. If we do not get a trade deal soon uh, between the UK and the EU, I think sterling could be really quite vulnerable. We've got to spend some time talking about Brexit in the not too distant future. Jane Foley of Rabobank, I'm sure you can hardly wait. We can hardly wait. Great to catch up with you this morning. My best to you and yours. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.